are so fortunate to have the worship ministry that we have. Are you thankful for Marlene on the piano and Blaine on the bass and, and singing and, and the words and Roger? I, I, I take it a joy to have the, the team that I have and they, they, they bring such good perspective for me and uh, I'm just so thankful that they're different and they have different likes and desires and that we can celebrate that. So thank you, Marlene, for playing and Blaine singing this morning. So I don't believe I said this earlier, but I am Pastor Dusty, and um, we have been working through our way through the book of John for seven chapters now. And last week, Pastor Jim talked about the funnel of confusion and rejection. Do you remember that? There was a big funnel. And, um, and this, this theme is going to continue out throughout what we're going to talk about today and even farther into John because there was, there, there, was, there was confusion. It was hard to know what to believe because you got this guy Jesus saying things that are seemingly directly in opposition to what the Pharisees, their their teachers and their high officials were saying, and so it was, a, it was a, a difficult time. And we find ourselves in the same position today, don't we? Who is Jesus? What, what does this guy 2,000 years ago have to do with our day today? And why is it that people at my job or on the TV are saying the exact opposite things that Jesus is saying? And yet there are people like the Pharisees that outright directly reject who Jesus was. And there are people today that are outright claiming to be atheists or agnostic, purely rejecting. I know who Jesus was. I know what the Bible says. And I reject that. So this morning, we're going to begin chapter 8. And we're going to see this similar pattern of confusion and rejection. So let's turn in our Bibles to... John chapter 8 and see what God has for us. If you would like a copy of God's word, there are some copies in the back there. And uh, if you just, I don't want to embarrass you, but if you would like one and you raise your hand, Dustin back there will bring a Bible to you if you would like that. It's important that we all get into God's word personally and don't take my word for it. It's supposed to be Bereans, right? Okay, so while you are navigating there, John chapter 8, verse 1, um, I want you to know that Pastor Jim is on vacation this week, so I will be your biblical tour guide this morning. So buckle up, keep all of your hands and feet in the vehicle, and don't feed the wildlife. Okay. It's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride this morning, though. Seriously, that's not just a, a funny thing. There's some there are some difficulties that we got to address in this passage. So, so take your Bible out and tell me, uh, Cody, let's bring that slide up there. Tell me if your Bible, um, if your Bible has something like that, does your Bible have something like that in it right above chapter 8? Raise your hand if your Bible looks something like that. Okay. Have you ever read this in your Bible and thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to hell if I read this. Anybody ever read this? Just to be honest and look like a little uncomfortable, like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, why, why is that in there? Well, I think I know why Pastor Jim chose to give me this passage. 
He's testing me. He's, he's messing with me. He thinks I'm going to fold under pressure. Well, I got news for him. I'm just going to talk about something totally different this morning, and he can address this when he comes back. <laughs> no, I, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to wimp out like that. So, so seriously, though, there, there, this is a, there, there are very, very, very way smarter people than me that argue about um, the, not that this passage is unbiblical and shouldn't be included in the Bible. That's not the, the, that's not the debate. The debate is, is it appropriate to place it here or over the course of time, did it get like removed from, there's like four different places where they say, I think it would, it would fit better. Um, so, um, so honesty is the best policy, right? Do you agree with that? I am actually thankful that the scholars that translate the Bible for us bring this out. And they say, look, just to be fair, the oldest manuscripts, some of them don't have this. I like that. That doesn't make me question the Bible. That makes me actually honor the scholarship better. So I appreciate that honesty. So this passage, even though it's contested by scholars, portrays Jesus' words and actions in a way that's consistent with the rest of the Gospels. So we're going to run with it this morning. You good with that? There's nothing that we're going to read this morning that's like, ooh, that's not to Jesus from the other parts. It's consistent. So we're going to just run with it in this place. But just know if you want to do some research on your own, there's some really interesting theories on where, where this story might fit better. So... We got that out of the way. All right. So thanks a lot, Pastor Jim. Enjoy your vacation. All right. So here's my main thought for us this morning. Jesus exposes the true motivations of the heart and also loves and forgives the brokenhearted. Okay? So... Jesus exposes the motivations of the heart. Okay, so let's look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and, and we'll go ahead and read it all. It's not very long, but it's important to get this whole section here. So they, each, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would illuminate it this morning and, um, and meet us. Meet us right here. Help us to know what we need to know. And, and we know that you're already moving here, Lord. We're, we're lifting you high in song. And I ask now that you would connect our, our thoughts to our emotions and that the Holy Spirit would move mightily and be with Pastor Jim as he's on 
vacation with his family, Lord, and bless him. And, and we just thank you for him and honor him as our pastor this morning, Jesus. In your name, amen. Okay. So, Jesus exposes the true motivations of the heart. So, in this situation, the Pharisees are publicly testing Jesus. So, let me ask you, we have a math teacher, two math teachers in here, actually. Do you think that people like tests in general? Is it like, do your kids come running in when it's test day? Do they love it or do they dread it? Or maybe, you know, somewhere in between. How about you? Do you like, raise your hand if you like tests. Zero hands. Oh, yeah, we got one there. Raise your hand if you clam up and you freak out when you have any kind of a test. Okay. All right. So the rest of you are either not paying attention or somewhere in the middle. So, um, so how about this? I know, we can, I know we can get a little better interaction on this one. Has your child ever tested you publicly? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Oh, good. So um, tell me about it in explicit detail if you had your... No, I'm just kidding. You ever been at Walmart when you're like, oh, it's about ready to go down on the next aisle? Like public, like when your kids call you out and you have to make a decision in public, it's different, right? It goes, it goes to a whole new level. And, and that's what the Pharisees, they're like, they're like bringing the trouble right to Jesus, and they are going for a public forum. And that is important to know. That's important to know because Jesus is going to expose their true motives. And the public nature of this act that they did is important. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But so, so the Pharisees, they, they're setting up this trap for Jesus. Okay, and what they're doing is the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew the Old Testament law. They probably actually had the first five books of the Bible memorized. So they knew exactly about what the law said concerning adultery. Okay, so, so they, they are very well, well versed in what the Bible in the Old Testament says about adultery. So they're bringing the, this knowledge to Jesus in a public way. And uh, here's your public service announcement. I don't think I see any children in here anymore, but um, this morning's topic is a little heavy for little ears. So it is not too late to send them out to the nursery if there, if there are, because I'm going to be general, but I'm going to talk about what the Bible says. Um, so we don't want to have this happen to your, to your kids if they are still in here. Yeah, we don't want them to wonder what's going on. So consider yourself warned. I don't think there are any kids here. Um, so anyway, moving on. So just so we're on the same page, I, don't you think it would be good to start off with a simple definition of adultery? I, I mean, I think we probably all feel like we know what that is, but it's always good to have a general consensus of what we're talking about. Okay, so uh, Cody, let's bring, up, let's bring up the slide here about adultery. So I Googled, I Googled adultery, and this is the first thing that came up. It's a little, it's a little hard to see, but uh, the adultery is the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his 
or her spouse. Okay, can we all agree that that is, a, that is an, an accurate and good definition of adultery? Okay, so the Pharisees are like, this happened. This is what the law said. They're bringing this to Jesus in a public way. So there was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Okay, remember that in your mind, in the act, because we're going to talk about that later. That's also important. So the law, the Mosaic law, and the punishment for adultery are clearly laid out in the Old Testament. There's not a lot of wiggle room. There's not need for big interpretational gymnastics. It's pretty clear. So let's look at what Exodus 20, 14 says. This is in that big group of 10 commandments in Exodus 20. And it says, you shall not commit adultery. Any other further definition or clarification needed? It's one of the, it's one of the top 10 that you're not supposed to do. Okay, so it's, it's, very, it's very clear. So the fact that the Pharisees were asking Jesus about stoning, okay? So, so they said this woman was caught in adultery. And they said, in the law of Moses... It commanded us to stone such a woman. So the fact that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to think about and or act on stoning this woman indicates that the woman was not married, but that she was betrothed to be married. Okay, so similar to our culture as an engagement, kind of a similar thing. The difference is in biblical culture, when there was a betrothal, meaning a father was guaranteeing his virgin daughter to be the wife of another man, when that agreement happens, it is as if they are actually married in that moment. So that's why they're going for stoning, because this is probably a virgin that has lost her virginity to someone other than who she was supposed to be getting married to. Does that make, does that make sense? This is, this is important. We're going we're gonna to keep talking about that. But So the same laws apply to married women and betrothed women. So Deuteronomy 22, 21 through 22, if you want to write that down, this is a good thing for, for further reference on this subject. It, it kind of outlines what a husband is supposed to do if his betrothed wife is suspected of committing adultery. There's, a, there's an outline, and there's other places as well that give the exact procedure of what to do if you suspect your betrothed wife has committed adultery. And in this passage, if she is found guilty of adultery, then she will be stoned to death at the door of her father's house. That is a harsh and cruel punishment that this woman was facing. So I just, I say that just so, just so we can understand the brutal reality of what was happening. This is, this is a horrible situation. And before we go any further, I just wanted that to settle in, the intensity of this situation. 
Adultery is a complicated issue. It deals with rape, consensual sex, trust, shame, guilt, marriage, and divorce. It's complicated. It's not something that we should rush into lightly. So I just want to ask you a question. When it comes to the topic of adultery, are you guilty of being quick to judge and slow to listen? I know I have. I probably, I probably am, even though I try not to be. Are you guilty of being quick to judge and slow to listen? It's complicated. It's hurtful. It's painful. It's deep. The Bible exposition commentary says this. It should be up on the screen. The law was given to reveal sin, and we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. So even though this is a difficult painful situation, there is a reason why we have the law, and it is to bring conviction when there is sin. And, and the, beginning, the beginning point to conversion is admitting and confessing that you have committed sin, and, and then forgiveness comes, and then healing comes. But the law is what is our guide to know what is right and what is wrong and what God expects of us. So this is some heavy stuff. So let's take a little break and laugh a little bit. Anybody, anybody good to be a little, a little laughter here? Okay, and my wife tells me that I tell really corny jokes and, and I set it up this way on purpose because I'm not a comedian. I'm not trying to make money making you guys laugh. I would go out of business. Um, so here's a couple jokes for you, okay? So did you know that the Apostle Paul was a stoner? Nothing? Okay, maybe it went over your head. Okay, wait for it. Maybe it'll get back to you. Ask the person next to you if you didn't get that one. Okay. So, so, so really, he wasn't a druggie, okay? But he did get stoned one time. See what I did there? Okay, all right, all right. Seriously, in Acts 14, 19, they stoned him. They threw stones at him, and they almost killed him, and they drug him outside of the city and left him to die and I don't know how he survived that, but he did. Okay, so, all right, that's enough on the Apostle Paul. Let's talk about Jesus a little bit here. So, this one's a little stretch here, all right, but, but just go with it, okay? Do you know who Jesus' favorite band is? Wait for it. The Rolling Stones. Yeah! Don't throw any fruit. Okay, all right. Terrible. The stone that was rolled away. My wife said that was an Easter joke and it was inappropriate. Um, so I disobeyed what she said. Anyway, so back to our regularly scheduled programming, right? So let's talk about the business of the Pharisees testing Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is not dumb. He knew exactly what was going on. 
The Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus publicly, and what ends up happening is actually the exact opposite. He actually, they're the ones that get their, themselves trapped. So Jesus flips this whole situation on them. So the second thing this morning is that, so the Pharisees try to publicly test Jesus. And the second thing is that Jesus publicly exposed the Pharisees. So starting in verse 7, 8, and 9, it says, actually, let's go in 6. So this they said to test him. So it's not, this isn't a question. This isn't an interpretation issue. They're literally, it says it right there in the Bible. They're, they're doing this to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We're going to talk about that later as well. That's really interesting. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Okay, so this word test, this word for test in this passage, it, it me, it's like the negative side of the, of the word test. So not all tests are bad, right, Kyle? Tests are not bad. They're proof of exhibiting that you have mastered the concepts. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, right? Um, so not all tests are bad. But in this, in this situation, the, the test is, in a bad sense, to test one maliciously, craftily, to put to the proof his feelings or judgment. So in that one word, the biblical writer, just with the one word test and the way he conjugated the verb and all of that fancy English stuff, the way they use that one word is saying this was a malicious kind of test, a crafty, and they were trying to put Jesus um, and Jesus' judgment and prove something. So the test that the Pharisees manufactured goes a little something like this. Here, here is what, here's the parameters of the setup, okay, the, um, the, the crime that they were trying to do. So the Pharisees knew that if Jesus condemned this woman and said, yes, she's an adulteress and she should be stoned, she should die, Jesus, the Pharisees knew that Jesus would lose favor with the common people that were coming to follow him. Because they're like, we like this guy. He says bad things to the Pharisees that we don't like. They are hypocrites and we don't like them. We like Jesus because he is loving and he's kind and he's compassionate and he helps the poor. You know, we like this guy. So they knew if he doesn't condemn, if, if he condemns this person, he's going to lose the favor of the people that are sitting around him and that are coming to hear him teach. And they, they knew that that was the scenario, okay? If they also knew that if Jesus doesn't condemn this woman to stoning, and follow the law, guess what? He's supposed to be a teacher of the law, and he's supposed to know what Moses says, and what Moses said, we read it earlier, there's no interpretation to it. Adultery, death. Adultery, death. Every single time. It's very clear. So they put Jesus in this pickle. 
this conundrum, okay? So if Jesus doesn't condemn her, then he would have been in direct violation of the law. It clearly condemns adultery. So that's the scenario. Does that make sense to you? That's what they're like, boom, what are you going to do now? We gotcha, okay? So here's the thing about this so-called test, okay? Every Jewish person at the temple that day, remember that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives earlier, and it said that he went to the temple courts, and that's where he was teaching. That's where they brought this woman, to the temple courts, okay? So everyone at the court that day listening to Jesus, they were aware of the judicial requirements to prove a case of adultery. They knew what happened, you know, like, oh man, my Aunt Nelda, she got busted big time. Like, they knew what happens and the procedure, right? Just like us, we know American law. Generally, we know like when there's massive abuse, it's obvious because we know the system of the law. So all the people there knew the requirements to prove adultery, and they also knew that the burden of proof is so high, it's almost impossible to convict a virgin of adultery. The burden of proof, are you familiar with that? Like the people that are accusing her, they're the ones that have to prove that this woman is actually an adulteress. And that requirement is so high, it's almost impossible. And all the people there knew this. So here's three things that you just can't know without being an Old Testament Jew at the time, okay? So number one, the Bible says to catch someone, remember it said in the act, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Do you remember that it said that earlier on? In order to catch someone in the act of adultery, it would have required two witnesses. Two people would have had to see it. So let me just ask you a question. For those of you that have had affairs. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, how likely is it that two people, two people walked in on somebody having an affair? Very unlikely because if you're having an affair... You're like away somewhere. You're hiding it, right? You're, you're taking great lengths to make sure that you don't get caught. So it's very unlikely that one person would have caught them in the act of adultery, let alone two people. And the reality is like, how big is the keyhole, right? How many people can see through the keyhole, okay? So that's, that's number one. They knew that. How, how is two people... Gonna, gonna, gonna see that. How likely is that in progress? No, maybe people heard about it, but in progress, not very likely. Number two, in order to prosecute adultery, both parties need to be present and brought before the judging council. Where was the man? Did you read anything in this passage about the man? So two witnesses... Plus, there is no man. So why is it that the Pharisees didn't bring the man with them? Hmm. Are your, are your wheels spinning a little bit? Is this starting to look a little fishy to you? Okay, so the third reality is that if the woman was truly a betrothed virgin, then the soiled bed linens 
with proof of the loss of virginity would have had to be presented. I'll let you figure that out if you can't figure that out. Um, but they would have had to bring bed sheets with physical proof that the loss of virginity happened. Okay, this is why I gave the proclaim, the, the uh, uh, what was that? The, uh, told you earlier, it's a little heavy. So they would have basically had to say, look, she's not a virgin anymore. Look at the bed sheets right there. Okay, so where were these linens? Did you hear, did you hear the Pharisees say that to Jesus? Hey, this woman's caught in adultery. Here's the man. Here's the two witnesses. And here's the linens. Boom. Signed, sealed, and delivered clear-cut case. They didn't do that. Where were the linens? So Jesus is publicly exposing them. Can you see why this does not look good on them? So this adulterous woman was more than likely a coordinated attempt to set up this woman and quite possibly even extort her to achieve their wicked agenda. How about that, Pharisees? Okay, that's probably what happened because those three things, the burden of proof is so high. And does that sound like other cases in the Bible? Like, hmm, Jesus's trial, they trumped up witnesses and they, they said lies. I mean, the Pharisees and scribes, they weren't above this kind of stuff, and that's why the burden of proof was so high, because there was abuse happening. There was husbands setting up their wives in this situation. They were displeased with their wives, and so they're like, okay, you two are going to be the witnesses. You know, they're like collaborating together to make this happen, because the burden of proof is so high. So Jesus's response to this ridiculous charade is, is leaning on Deuteronomy 17.7. Is, is that one up there, Cody? I don't, know if I, put, I don't know if I put that one up there. I don't think so. So Deuteronomy 17.7. So Deuteronomy 17.7 says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, oh, oh, So this is what Jesus, Jesus says. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, said to them, meaning Jesus saying to the Pharisees, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus was alluding to Deuteronomy 17, 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 17, 7 says, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So when stoning was to be happening, and there's other reasons why people would get stoned other than adultery, it would be idol worship, there was other, there was other reasons that called for stoning. And Jesus is, is leaning on Deuteronomy 17, 7, that says, the person who witnesses this crime against Yahweh or against their, if it's, if it's a father and his daughter, they should be the first person to cast the stone. So that's why Jesus says, let him is who is without sin among you be the first one to throw 
a stone at her. So he's like, who saw it? Who was there? Pick up your stone. Go ahead. And by the way, do you not have any guilt or sin in your life? And if that's the case, go ahead. And what happened? All of the Pharisees and scribes walked away one by one. They, they turned away because they were publicly exposed one by one. So the question is, why did they, why did they leave? You know, I'm thousands of years later trying to piece this together. But in that situation, if you were there, why, why, would, why would they have left? Why didn't they continue to argue? Why didn't they continue to fight? What, what was it if we were, you know, if we were just a little birdie on a tree? What was it that, that made them drop their stones, turn away, and leave? So was it because this, the whole situation was completely fabricated and they were caught? Possibly. I mean, that, that is a possibility. This is just conjecture here, okay? But that, that is a very real possibility. Or maybe was it because of what he was writing on the ground? Remember two times in this passage, Jesus is bending down and writing things on the ground. Has anybody ever read this passage before and wondered like, A, why was Jesus doing that? And then B, what was it that he was writing? Anybody ever wondered that before? Okay. Well, you can ask Pastor Jim that next week. Um, so there, there are some really interesting, there are some really interesting theories um, on what he, what he was, what he was writing. Um, but, but two of them that I think, that I think stand out, like as front runners, as really good, like reasonable possibilities is Let's pull, up that, that, let's pull up that first slide there. Okay, so what if Jesus was writing Jeremiah 17, 13? Those who turn away from you, the hope of Israel, those who for all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who in turn turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living water. Ooh, that'd be a stinger if they're like, because remember, they knew the law and the prophets, so they would have known this passage. I, I, that's an interesting, your name shall be written in the earth. Okay, how about, how about the next one? Ex, what if he was writing Exodus 23.1? You shall not spread false a false report. You shall not Join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. What if he was just without saying a word? Exodus 23, 1. And all the people there could see it, and so could the Pharisees. I don't really know, but the combination of the charade that was happening and, and the almost impossibility to prove adultery and whatever it was that Jesus was writing on the ground, something exposed their hearts and they, and they left. 
after the true motivations of our heart are exposed, it's at that point that we are in need of the love and forgiveness that only Jesus can give. If this woman really was an adulteress, then at that moment she really needed the love and forgiveness of God, right? If that was the case. When the Pharisees were exposed and the motivations of their heart came to light, at that moment they needed the love and forgiveness of Jesus just as much as the adulterous woman. So a question for you to just think about in your life, how do you respond when your sin is exposed? I don't know what that is. How, how have you responded when sin has been exposed? How do you think that you might respond? I can't answer that for you, but that's an interesting interesting question. Hopefully, biblically, it is with repentance and humility, not pride. So the, the second kind of big thing that, that I want to talk to you about this morning is, is uh, not only that Jesus exposes the true motivations of our heart, that, that is true, we see that here, but secondly, Jesus also loves and forgives the brokenhearted. Whether it was these adulteress, if she really was an adulteress, or the Pharisees, he loves and forgives the brokenhearted. In that moment when you are found out, Jesus loves and forgives. So this may seem like a really like, like a basic or simple question. How do you know that Jesus really loves you? Okay, like so if you... Preston, if you sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Does that mean all of a sudden that you know that Jesus loves you because you sing that song? No, that's, that's singing a song. So how do you know? The old-timey preacher would say, how do you know that you know that you know that you know? How do you specifically know that Jesus loves you? You can read all day long about that the Bible says that Jesus loves you. He died for all the sins of the world, you can see that. But how do you specifically know that Jesus loves you? This is an important thing because it's one thing to read something in the Bible. It's another thing to know in the depths of your person that you are loved by God, that you are his child, you, that you have been redeemed. I have bought you with a price. Those are all knowledge things, but how do you get it from your head into your heart? How do you know that 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 he loves you and that he's forgiven you and he wants a relationship with you? Well, let me show you something that, again, you can't know because we are English-speaking Americans thousands of years later. I want to talk to you specifically about the word that Jesus uses um, and the Pharisees when they call this this, this uh, woman, does it bother anybody else that it's like her name is not used? Is that ever like, what the heck? Why, why does this say this, this woman? And why does Jesus say woman? Like, why doesn't he say Matilda? You know, I don't condemn you anymore or whatever her name is. Like, um, I don't have an answer for that. You'll have to ask Pastor Jim that too. Um, he'll get lots of emails this week. But, but so, so the Pharisees say, this woman was caught in adultery. And Jesus says, 
woman, where are those that condemn you? Then I don't condemn you anymore. We're, we're going to get to that in a second. But, but that word, that word woman is used, it's the same word, but, it, but it's used in a, very, in a very different way that's not present in the English language. So I'm going to do my best to help you understand this because I think it's so important. So look at verse, um, so verse 8. And once more, he bent down to the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So, in verse 10, Jesus says, Woman, where are they? Okay, so here's the deal with, with the word. When you, when you break down the Greek tenses of this word, when Jesus was referring to this woman... He was using what's called the vocative case of the word woman. And, and the vocative case is, is meaning that, that he was directly addressing or exclaiming, like, that's my friend. That's my friend Richard right there. Like, it's a personal, like, so when he's saying woman, it's like a very, it's a very personal address to her, you know, that's, this is Richard, right? You know, this is, you know, I respect him and honor him. Like it's a personal thing. That's the way Jesus was using this, the tense of this word. So it's as if Jesus is talking to her and not just about her, okay? When the Pharisees talked about this woman, they were using the nominative, nominative, that's a fun word to say, the nominative case. And the nominative, nominative case refers to the case used for a noun or a pronoun when it's the subject of a verb. So it's like they were talking to her just only in relation to her adultery. It was like, yep, there's the woman, meaning the chick who's an adulteress. You understand what I'm saying? It's only connected to, it's not a personal thing. It's as, it's as if... They were talking about her like a thing or a property or just only in relation to the verb, the action that she made, that she took. So the Pharisees talked about her generically like a thing. And the Pharisees were the ones that knew the law. They knew the desires of Yahweh that he gave to us. They knew, memorized all the things that Yahweh, that God taught us through the Old Testament. And they were living by the letter of the law. They knew it to exact specificity and they were trying to use it to accuse this woman of adultery while maliciously trying to set up Jesus at the same time. And living by the letter of the law we do that today, too, don't we? We know what the Bible says, and we smack it right on top of people. We know that they're doing sinful things, and we beat people. Ever heard the phrase, don't beat me over the head with the Bible? We do that, too. We live the same. We have the same thing. 
So living by the letter of the law, just looking at the specificity of what the Bible says and generically applying that as a template to someone's life, okay, that's living by the letter of the law, that is a breeding ground for judgmentalism, hypocrisy, overlooking, dismissiveness, generalization, apathy, condemnation, and accusation. It's a breeding ground if you find yourself living by what the Bible says this and you violated that and blah, 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 blah. That's a breeding ground for hypocrisy, dismissiveness, generalization, apathy, condemnation. Jesus talked to this woman as a person. Jesus lived by the law of love. And the law of love cultivates empathy, understanding, compassion, respect, grace, and kindness. Jesus was like, are you kidding me? You guys are setting me up publicly. This woman is facing stoning. How dare you do this in a, in a, like a public way to try and set me up? Jesus was looking past the specificity in the letter of the law, and he was living by the law of love. Jesus has proven his personal and intimate love for you. He doesn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for you. You specifically. Jesus' death can be applied to you. He knew you before you were born. He, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you intimately. He knows you better than you know you. And he knows the struggles that you're having, and he knows that you are going to have guilt and that you are going to be under condemnation from people. So Jesus says, woman, it's almost like he's saying, it's almost like he's saying, you are not their property. They don't own you, and your sin doesn't own you. My grace owns you. You are not condemned. I have died on the cross to fix this because the law doesn't fix it. The law just brings conviction and condemnation. It doesn't fix it. I will fix it because I love you. You, woman, are my daughter. Personally, I don't condemn you anymore. And by the way, where are they? Where are they? They cannot condemn you. They cannot judge you. They are not without sin. The only person in that situation that could have picked up a stone to throw at her was Jesus, and he did not. There's a great picture that, I've, that I found. It says, she said, let's bring up that slide there, number nine, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. But it doesn't, it doesn't end there. We, we need to keep, we need to press in a little bit deeper. So Jesus loves her and he loves you, but we do need to talk about this idea of condemnation because it is, it's, it's an important uh, facet of our, of our belief system and our theology. So to condemn means to give judgment against or to judge someone 
being worthy of a punishment. Okay, so the idea of, um, of judging, that, that's condemnation. So a judge would condemn someone if they are worthy of the punishment. Okay, so these Pharisees were trying to, they were trying to say, look, she committed adultery. This is what the law says. Boom, give her the scarlet letter. Let's start stoning. That's what they were trying to do. They were taking on that role of a judge. And biblically, that was the role. That was the, the role of priests and, and the scribes and the Pharisees. That, that, was, that was their rightful role. It's just they were malicious in the way they were trying to set up Jesus in the situation. So bringing judgment against is, is someone that's worthy of condemnation. Okay, so Jesus is the rightful judge. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus could answer he who was without sin to cast the first stone. Jesus, he fits that criteria. He could have done that. So he was the rightful judge in that situation. God is the rightful judge in the situation of our lives. But he chooses, instead of to condemn her, he chooses to extend grace to her. So look at what Matthew 5.17 says. Is that one up there? Yeah. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I have, this is Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so there, there, are, there are people that are like, Wait a second, if this woman was in adultery, why is Jesus saying, no big deal. Go ahead and don't do it anymore. That doesn't feel right, right? If you're honest, that doesn't feel right either, okay? So what Jesus is doing is he is, he is dismissing the situation that was trumped up charges against this adulterous woman. He's like, he's like uh, addressing the situation and, and, and exposing the corruption that was happening, and yet he was personally speaking to this woman, he was not saying, no big deal, you are saved. He was not saying that. He's just saying, I am not condemning you because I didn't come to not use the law. I didn't come to say the Pharisees are wrong and there's a whole new thing. He's saying, I came to fulfill the law. So when Jesus died on the cross, guess what he died for? The condemnation that we deserve when we sin. If she was an adulteress and she broke the law, she should die. That does not change. Jesus is not arguing that. But he's saying, guess what? I am taking her, her condemnation. I am taking your condemnation. I am dying. I am willing to pay the price to satisfy the law. But I want to break the cycle of the oppression of the law and the abuse of the Pharisees and the scribes and deal with this once and for all. Jesus died once for all. And when we confess our sin, then we are saved. We move from death unto life. We do not have condemnation anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he said that to this woman. You shouldn't have to live under the oppression of condemnation because I am going to make it right. Now, she didn't know that because he hadn't died yet. But is Jesus going to make it right? 
Yeah, he is. In a few short chapters, he's going to be hanging on a cross to make it right and to make the removal of guilt and shame and condemnation sealed once and for all later on. It's the beauty of the gospel message. So Jesus understands, fulfills, administers, honors, exemplifies, and satisfies all of the law in his life, death, and resurrection. All of it. Above and beyond all of this, he addresses the motives of the heart and is unscathed by the malicious, pseudo-religious attempts of man. We need to see the righteousness of God on display. And that is what this woman saw. The righteousness of God in the flesh right before her, calling out, exposing sin for what it is. We need to see righteousness. Jesus wants his followers to know that he will expose the unrighteousness and he will uphold and heal the hurting. No one gets away with sin. No one gets away with it. All sin and sinners were dealt with on the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no distinctions between class, gender, race, ethnicity. Jesus died once for all. And we as sinful humans are responsible for the death of Jesus. Our condemnation is what required Jesus to climb up on that cross. All of us are responsible, the Pharisees and the woman. Whether she was caught in an adulterous affair or not doesn't matter because she had other sins in her life that sent the Messiah to Calvary. I'm going to read this poem to you. He willingly, meaning Jesus, he willingly climbed up on the cross to die for the powerful and the powerless. The self-righteous will be separated. Sinners become liberated. Salvation is orchestrated by the God who incarnated. Deity took on flesh so that flesh would be eradicated. Jesus propitiated. Since the garden, we have violated, been implicated, initiated, tolerated, and even <clears throat> appropriated sin. From now on, sin no more. You have been extricated. Put the stone down. You are full of sin and honestly deserve to be stoned. I'm included in that you. <coughs> we need to live our lives in humility and reverence because Jesus, the only righteous judge, chose the cross and not the stone. You decide. Do you want to live by the cross or by the stone? Legalism and law or love and liberty? It's as simple as that. Put down the stone. Let's pray.
Lord, this morning, it's with heavy hearts that we that we approach you. We have we have nothing in our own merits to, that has earned the right to be heard by you. The only thing that our own merit has done is condemned us, Lord. Our, our sinful choices, our sinful thoughts are what required you to die. And so this morning, I just pray that there would... There would just be a sense of reverence, a sense of appreciation, a sense of awe that you understand the depth of the human condition and that you are the only one that could make a difference, that could break the the code of the law. Only you. And that is why we come here, because you are the liberating king. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Your death was effective. Your death frees us from sin. Your death brings peace. Your death lifts condemnation from us, Lord. And I pray, Lord Jesus, over this people, Lord, over this church this morning, I pray that you would help us to live in the tension between pursuing righteousness and holiness and yet continuing to have sin in our life that requires death and that requires judgment, Lord. Help us to pursue you, but to be thankful that we don't have to do the work on our own, that you did the work on our behalf, Lord. You did what we cannot do. You accomplished what we cannot accomplish. And it's for that we are forever grateful, Lord. We, we can say this morning, it is well with my soul. Not because we get away with sin, but because our sin was dealt with once and for all. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray that if there is someone here this morning that, that is still walking the line of, of confusion and rejection about what the world says about you and, and your word and the church. I pray that you would bring clarity. I pray that you would bring um, an open-mindedness, Lord, because it is so clear how much you love us, how much you care, how much you desire to be with us, and what length you are willing to go to to prove your love for us. So bring clarity, Lord. We, we need you. We need you, Jesus. Help us to put the stone down. In your name, Jesus, amen.